Thank you so much, uh, Jarrett, and what a blessing it is to be here. I just want to apologize right off the start to any first-time guests. We're incredibly thankful that you're here. I apologize that Jarrett's not uh, speaking today because he's an incredible communicator. I can see pastors all over North America, and you're blessed with one of the finest pastors in all of North America. You really are. And uh, so I just want to say to first-time guests, today it will not be as good. I'm just going to tell you, this is not going to be as good, but also will not be as long. All right, so I just wanted to make sure you know that. Hey, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in just a moment, uh, but I do wanna thank you for how you give to missions and how you've done that for years. And today, I'd just like to just say thank you real quickly and show you that um, what you gave and what actually happened that you may not be aware of. Before I do that, I would like to introduce my family. I wasn't able to bring them all because there's quite a few, uh, but my, my wife and I have six kids and seven grandkids, they're gonna pop the picture up there. And I'm a wonderful wife, we've been married for 38 years. And then uh, our six kids, we have, there's quite a few, don't count the grandkids, uh, I said I have seven, they're not all up there, I only put the, the cute ones in the picture. And so, uh, <laughs> that's not true, we gotta update the picture. Thanksgiving's around the corner, you know. But we have uh, uh, our oldest uh, two daughters and son, we're all biological, and then we adopted our youngest three. The first one we adopted was just to the left of my wife, uh, Livy. We got her when she's one, and she's now 22. She's in a school of pharmacy, and she's a, uh, just an angel on this earth. I'm sure she sinned at some point. I've just not seen it. And then, then there on the far right is, uh, that's Michael Lynn. We got her from Ethiopia. And uh, she's now 20. She's in the School of Nursing at California Baptist University out in California. And, and it's funny, if you're, it's, you, some of you probably don't remember the show uh, Sanford and Son. You remember that show? Well, all right. Well, we adopted Ann Esther. All right? That's what we adopted. Okay, what I mean, she's very bossy. That's her gift. You know, she walks in a room. Or actually, when she walked into our neighbor's house when she was five and says, you people have issues, and, and put her hand on her hip. And they're, they're like, do what? She goes, your house is a mess. You have issues. You know, we're like, sweetheart, we're trying to make friends, and you're not helping. All right? Don't do that. That's just who she is. But then on the far left is J.M., John Michael, but he goes by J.M. Uh, we adopted J.M. when he was 12. And he's now 23 from the Philippines. And it's real funny, when, when they were all at home and we'd walk into a restaurant or somewhere when, and, and it'd be six of us, I mean, it'd be eight of us, but, you know, six kids from four different countries, you know, people are like, how did that happen? Or, or, or typically in the South, they'll do things like, well, bless your heart. I know what that means. That means better you than me, buddy, better you than me. I said, look, there's just no need to bless my heart. I'm just very competitive. No, no, no. What I mean is, look, six kids, four different countries. When we watch the Olympics, we win, all right? <laughs> we do. Hey, the fun thing happened, we went to pick up JM, all right? Um, again, he was 12. He's the only one that spoke English when we picked him up. And so it made it unique. And they told us, now, when you take JM back to the hotel room, be very careful with him because we found him when he was five. He was wandering the streets asleep in the back of a pickup truck. And we brought him to the orphanage. He's been here for seven years. And you age out in Puerto Rico uh, around that time, around 13, and you just put on the streets. And so he said, look, be very careful with him. He's not used to certain luxuries. And went, luxuries? You've got us confused. And went, no, 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 hot water. 
He said, we don't have hot water. There's hot water in Manila. I know that, but not in this orphanage. And basically he took sink baths uh, all that time. And so just make sure he doesn't hurt himself with hot water. I said, okay, that's no problem. So we go back to the hotel. You can imagine your first night in a hotel. I'm letting him, you know, bounce around on the beds and do those kind of things. And then it came time for bath time. I said, hey, Jim, come here, buddy. I want to show you something. And so we go in the bath and bathroom and, and I turn the water on lukewarm. And, and then I say, here, let me have your hand. He took his hand, and I put his hand underneath that lukewarm water, and then I just gradually, gradually turned the water warmer and warmer and warmer until he felt hot water for the very first time. I know, and he said, that is wonderful. I said, it is wonderful. Wait, you, now here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna go in there, you take off your clothes and hop in the shower. He said, shower, what's a shower? Uh, I wasn't thinking. Again, I'm spoiled. You're spoiled. I mean, you're sitting on padded pews and environmentally controlled. We're all spoiled. Would you know? He said, uh, I, so I had to explain a shower to him. I said, it's like, have you ever done that? It sounds easy, but it's not when you think about it. It's like, hey, it's just like water from heaven. You're going to like it. All right, just trust me. <laughs> There's so many things because we're so used to certain things, we, we just uh, can't fathom people not understanding. So like the first time we went out to eat, he looked at a menu and began to cry. But for seven years, he just ate whatever they put in front of him. Uh, he didn't have choices. And all these choices, it would just overwhelmed him. And I said, no, 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 don't cry. I'll order for you. He said, okay, Dad. And so they brought, the, the wait, waitress came. I said, just bring him some chicken fingers. <laughs> He's like, no! I not eat chicken fingers. I mean, no, they're not chicken fingers. That's just what they call them. He says, well, why do they call them that? I'm like, I don't know. Just dip them in barbecue sauce. It's going to be fine. You can only imagine the next time we had buffalo wings. Oh, my word. So many challenges. But I'll never forget, though, when he came back out of that shower after about 30 minutes, he was, I mean, he was all shriveled up but, but loving life. And still to this day, when he comes home and he takes a shower, you hear him singing in there because he remembers what it's like not to have a shower. My point in telling you that is, you know, he remembers that because it's something he didn't have. We get used to certain things and we don't think twice about it. When Pastor Jared said playing churches, and I appreciate your applause, but sometimes we look around and think, you know, is there really a need for more churches? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of churches. Well, there actually, there is. We're trying to reach North America. We want to reach Houston. We want to reach North America. The Northeast, the Midwest, West, and Canada. The challenge that we have, the majority of evangelical churches are in the South. The majority of them are in the, the SEC and the ACC. It's the other conferences that are going to hell, and we've got to reach them, all right? <laughs> Don't blame Brother Jared for that. That was mine, all right? I apologize. My point is we've got to plant churches all over North America because 80% of people in North America live in and around, in and around major cities. I, won't have, I don't have time to show you all the maps, but I, want, I picked out two because I'd love to show you all the cities. But I want to show you a map of Washington, D.C., and the dots represent the churches that were being planted back in 2010. Because you faithfully give every week to missions, you do. A part of what you give, Champion Force, helps us 
plant churches all over North America. This is what DC looks like today in church plants. That's because of your faithful giving. And then if you take a city like you take a city like LA, LA, this is what it looked like in 2010. And because of your faithful giving, this is what it looks like in 2023. Now, the reason I shared that is I want you to see that it's about, it's, it's straight out of the book of Acts. Like what's the game plan? What's your strategy, you might say? It's out of the book of Acts. That's exactly what they did. They went and planted churches in hopes that they plant another church out of that one. And see, if you go back and look at your own history, someone planted a church that planted a church that planted a church that planted a church that planted your church. They all came from somewhere. It just didn't pop up. Someone intentionally did that. In the book of Acts, we see that. And today, I want to talk about missions. It's Missions Week. And sometimes when we do that, we, we, we just talk about missionaries that are overseas or missionaries here in North America. But today, I want to talk about missionaries that are here today. And it's you in your seat. What are you doing? We are all to live on mission. And so today, I'm not trying to talk you into going to another country. I'm not. Oh, that's great if you do. I'm not trying to talk you to go to another city. I'm not. I'm trying to talk you into going the next door, across the street, or actually to engage and give and go through CF Connect as you give to missions, to have a vision for what God could do. Listen, you have a limited amount of time on this earth. How much time do you have? You really don't know. What are you going to do with it? Well, that's your decision. Pastor Jared did a great sermon two weeks ago on uh, making the most of your time. Had the little, uh, the, some little candies up here that show the different kind of weeks that you had and all. And it was fantastic because he's exactly right. I mean, his oldest daughter's a senior. He's got about 28 more Saturdays with her until she graduates. Everything's on a time. I mean, the time is ticking. You don't know how much more time you have, but God puts you here to do more than draw a breath and draw a salary to make a difference. Every one of us are to be on mission. There's a purpose that you're breathing today. There's a purpose that you're here. And don't buy that, hey, you're retired and it's this or that. There's never a time to pull over in the rest stop when it's being on mission. What I want you to see is this all comes from the book of Acts. We're going to get to 1 Corinthians, I promise, in just a second. But when did he write that? Paul wrote that book to a church at Corinth on his third missionary journey. So let me back up just real quick and give you context. Back in Acts chapter 13, and I encourage you to read it when you can. If, if you're like me, I turn it on and just listen to it. It's, it's an easy, easy drive list. In Acts 13, the church of Antioch sent out two of their best, Paul and a guy by the name of Barnabas. They sent them out on what's called now the first missionary journey. And what did they do? They left Antioch. And I love in chapter 13 where it says in Antioch, they prayed over him like you just did. Wasn't that beautiful? They prayed over him just like that. And then it said they sent them off. They sent them off. They sent them away. They understood that the mission field was out there. We need to reach people out there. And sometimes that means we have to give up our best. We're going to give up Paul and Barnabas our best and we're going to send them out. They sent them off. I really believe this. Our church's success 
will be determined by your sending capacity, not by your seeding capacity. You've got a great history here. But don't stand too long at the trophy cases looking back at all that you have done. I love that last song they just sang, all that he's done. Man, we absolutely should praise him for all that he has done. And at the same time, look expectantly to all that he is going to do. Acts 13, first missionary journey, they go out, plant church. They come back, they report to church, the, the Antioch church and tells them, they tell them accountability. They tell them what they did. Took a little rest and they were gonna go out on a second missionary journey and Paul decided to go with Silas because he and Barnabas got frustrated at each other. You can read that. It's a whole good drama. You can read that later. Paul takes Silas on the second missionary journey, and it was, it was rough. I mean, they got ran out of towns. They got put in jail. That's when he wrote some of the New Testament. It was from jail. Comes back, reports to the church. Then he goes back on what's called a third missionary journey. My whole point is Paul is weathered by now. You know, years and years of challenge and trials. And if you do a study on the Apostle Paul, there's not one thing he did he didn't get significant pushback on. It was always a challenge. I mean, that's why he was writing most of the New Testament from jail. He gets to the point of 1 Corinthians and he tells them, look, be alert. Be courageous. Do everything with love. Now, why is Paul saying that? Because all of life had happened, and he understood, look, life throws you curveballs. It can be exhausting. And when you weigh what it is that you need to do when it comes to making a decision, when you decide what to do, you need to understand how to weigh it and how to evaluate it. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians. I think we'll put it up on the, the screens, I believe. If not, I'll read it. And uh, there we go. I'm coming to visit you after I have been to Macedonia. For I'm planning to travel through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay a while with you, possibly all winter. And then you can send me on my way to the next destination. Next slide. The time I don't, uh, this time I don't, want to make just a short visit and then go right on. I want to come and stay a while, and if the Lord will let me, in the meantime, I will stay here in Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. There is a wide open door for great work here, comma, although many oppose me. That's what we're going to focus on. I love that. There is a wide open door for great work here. A great opportunity, Paul says. Although, he didn't say a few, many opposed me. You know what I love about the Apostle Paul? He took all of life's experience, and that's what helped him make decisions. It was all about the mission. And it, what you see real quickly is Paul understood what an open door is. I mean, we're to be constantly looking for an open door of opportunity where God may provide an open door that we might connect with someone. And, and what if you read Acts 19, you see the, my word, the church at Ephesus at the time was a dumpster fire. Things all, there were riots and all sorts of horrible things happening. But Paul knew how to recognize an open door when he saw one. 
So he began to, to preach in the synagogues and he would read scripture and preach and for hours upon hours until he got kicked out of the synagogue and he had to rent a hall so he could continue to do that. But out of that, people's lives were changed. And Pergamos and Colossae, and it could go all the way down, all these churches that were birthed out of one man being focused on a mission. Paul, in his lifetime, had the chance to personally plant about 15 to 20 churches throughout the book of Acts. Now, that's incredible. But it was very difficult. But he stayed faithful and focused. One of my favorite passages is in Acts 20. When Paul was leaving Ephesus, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but when he was leaving Ephesus, he, he told him, look, God's called me to, to go to Jerusalem He's not told me everything, but the Holy Spirit's impressed on me. Look, it's gonna, be, it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be difficult. There may be chains involved. I may go to jail again, but I consider my life worth nothing to me, but that I might complete the task, the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's what I want you to see. You may be an engineer, you may work in a factory, you may, be to, you may go to school, whatever it is that you do, wherever you are, God puts you there for a purpose in your, in your circle so that you could influence it. You're to be on mission. You've been planted there. We celebrate people in other countries, in other states, but you've been planted where you are to use your influence. You've just got to see the open doors and take advantage of them. I was on a flight um, not long ago back from where we were doing an evangelism conference and we were training um, thousands of pastors on how to do evangelism. I was tired, worn out. I was ready to just sit on a plane and, and just kind of gel. And I thought, man, I hope I'm not sitting by one of those people who want to talk. <laughs> well, my prayer was not answered. And so, jokingly, stay with me. If you're, that's the story. I sit down and I sit by a guy who's a talker. And, and he said, uh, hey there, what's your name? And I told him, my first, I'm Kevin. He goes, hey, Kevin, I'm, and he told me his name. His name was Jim. He said, uh, where are you headed? And I said, same place you are. <laughs> I said, I live there. And he said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, uh, I work at a mission board. He said, well, why were you here? I was like, well, I was here teaching a conference. A conference on what? Well, it was a conference on sharing, uh, how, teaching people how uh, to share with people of what it takes to go to heaven. And I kid you not, he said, well, in your personal opinion, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? <laughs> so it's just like the Lord said, look, look, you're so stupid, Kevin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put a door open here, but I'm going to make you go through it. And I shared with him. He didn't accept Christ on that trip, but we went to lunch a couple times later that, and obviously a few months later, he did actually accept Christ. But the problem is, really, it's really a testimony. You can clap, but it's a testimony of foolishness on my part. I didn't want it. I, just, I was not going to be used to do anything. I was focused on what? My, my hunger and my health. I was tired. I'm just saying, look, we've got to look for open doors. The second thing you see here, though, he says, wide open doors of opportunity. All these churches were being planted and Paul's basically saying, look, I'm gonna ride the wave. 
This is something incredible. This is something special. This is something that doesn't happen every day. I'm going to stay in Ephesus for, and end up staying there for three years. Going to make the most of the opportunity. Look, I want to encourage you. Man, hearing you guys sing and being here, I go to churches all over North America. There is, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke. There is something really special here and do not take it for granted. It's not like it is here everywhere. So waste opportunities. But then he says, many opposed me. And what did that mean by adversaries? Well, they opposed him in the synagogue. The religious people opposed him. I mean, you could go down. And what really, had the biggest opposition is there was Demetrius, the silversmith. Oh, my word. He was kind of like the, had a, a union of all these silversmiths. And they, would, they basically would create these handmade idols. And what happened is this little church, this little church stood their ground, preached the word. And what happened? It changed people's life from the inside out. And they begin to say, you know, we don't need these handmade idols there is one true God, and this is not it. And they started, and so they stopped buying these handmade idols. Well, nothing will tick people off quicker than an invasion into their wallet. And so they began to organize and plot and go against them simply because they were changing the economic conditions around them because of what you're preaching, the word. You know what I love about this, though? When he says, a door of wide open opportunity, but many opposed me. Paul saw opposition as a reason to stay, not an excuse to leave. Think about it. When you're up to a, a, a big decision, how do you make decisions? Again, two weeks ago, if you hadn't heard that sermon, you need to go back and listen to it. How do you make the most of your life? You, you do the right things with your time you have left. Well, how do you decide that? It's in those decisions. When you make a decision, it triggers another decision. I'm so thankful for my wife, but I, I went to a school in college and met her. And because of that, then this triggered and that triggered and that triggered and that triggered. And all through your life, it's based on the decisions you make. What influences or how do you make those decisions? Here's how most people do it. Let's make a list. Pros and cons. We'll put all the pros down, all the cons down. Well, okay, well, what makes it a pro and what makes it a con? For Paul, the furtherance of the gospel is what mattered. I consider my life worth nothing to me. It doesn't matter. It's not about my pleasure. It's not about what's simplest to me or what's most beneficial to me or I make the most money. It's not, none of those things are bad, but that's not what drives this decision, Paul would say. I consider my life worth nothing to me, but that I might complete the task of the gospel. What is going to further the gospel more? That was the pro, that was the con. So often our pros and cons, we'd really be happy there. You know, I don't know. And we, you know how we try to evaluate things just based on our own comfort and our own ease. I just want to remind you a few things. When you see a door of opportunity... I encourage you to be obedient and go through it. I want you to remember, I'm not convinced God will give you more doors of opportunity if you don't go through the current one he has before you. There's no reason typically he rewards disobedience of ignoring doors of opportunity. Sometimes we think we're above certain things. You make the most of whatever, the small door, you make the most of that, then God entrusts you with a bigger door perhaps. 
Then I also want to encourage you. When there's a door and there's just opposition and no opportunity for the gospel, that's one I would encourage you to avoid. God wants us to look for doors with gospel opportunity. And it's not always gonna be easy. What I'm saying is sometimes people evaluate, how's it going? It's going good, everybody's good. Health's good, this good, this good, this good, this good. In Paul's life, how's it going? I've been in jail, been kicked out. I'll tell you what, they are wearing me down. But that was the most fruitful time of his ministry. So be careful to evaluate things based on your ease. Listen, the Apostle Paul was so worn out, so worn out and frustrated that in Acts 18, I mean, the Lord obviously knew Paul's heart and knew that he was worn out. So he comes to him in a dream in Acts 18, verse 9 and 10, and says to him this, Paul, stop being afraid says, do not be afraid, but actually the, the word means stop it. You are afraid, stop it. Why would you be afraid? Stop it. Stop being afraid. Do not be afraid. And then it says, you keep on speaking and don't be silent. What's that mean? He's telling him, you keep on preaching the gospel and do not quit. Do not be afraid and do not quit. Paul, do not be afraid. And do not quit. Can you say those with me? You ready? Do not be afraid. And all right, come on, one more time. Do not be afraid and do not. That's right. But then he followed with, with because I am with you. I love that part. He says, Look, there's no need for you to ever be afraid. He says that, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I can give you verse after verse after verse. There's no need for you to be afraid because I've got you. I am with you. I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. I'll be there. So don't be afraid. And then you do not quit because I'm with you. I am with you. I am with you. I know Jared told you I was at the North American Mission Board. I pastored in Kentucky for uh, 14 years, and, and I grew up in Kentucky. And so everything I know is really from Kentucky. And, and I, I, know, I know in Texas, you guys are really proud of football. You guys like football. You like baseball. I know you're good at that too, but football is your thing, all right? It seems like it is. Um, in Kentucky, it's just not our deal, all right? It's not, we're not against it. We just don't care. <laughs> I'm a Kentucky fan. Somebody said, hey, you got beat by Tennessee yesterday. Don't care. <laughs> yeah, it's because in Kentucky, football is like the chips and dip. All right, it's an appetizer. It's not the main meal. Main meal in Kentucky is basketball. Now, there you go. Thank you. We have a few believers in the audience. And so... Uh, <laughs> It's ba in basketball. I mean, seriously, when I was growing up and there was like tornadoes coming to Kentucky, they had everybody rush to the football field because there are very few touchdowns there. All right? So, 
I know, I know, dad joke, dad joke. <laughs> but my wonderful sweet wife that you just saw, uh, we've been married for, it'd be almost, almost uh, 38 years. In December, it'd be 38 years. We got married December 28th, 1985. Our first major marital challenge, I would say discussion, but I didn't do much of the talking was in March of 1986. It's something that all of North America celebrates every March called March Madness. I was watching Kentucky, we were in the quarterfinals, I remember like it was yesterday. And we'd just been married three years, I thought things were going incredibly well. We were watching the game, and she said, hey, I like, can we talk about so-and-so? And I said, uh, sure, can we just do it after, can we do it after the game? And I wasn't expecting what came next. She said, well, are you saying the game's more important than me? And I waited too long to answer. <laughs> and then it kind of elevated. And she said, you know, and another thing, you're too competitive. I went, too competitive? What do you mean too competitive? Where's this coming? And she had one sister uh, her dad was not competitive. He just killed things and brought it home. He was a hunter. And, and, and I said, what do you mean? She said, well, when we watch games, you yell like you're there. You're not even at the game. You're yelling at the TV. You yell at the referees. I said, I don't yell at the referees. I'm just trying to encourage them to do better. <laughs> you yell at the coach. You yell at the players. And, and, and I could tell it really got in her seat. I said, look, I'm, well, I'm sorry. I'm glad you said that. But um, I'll, I'll adjust. Well, I realized after a week, like, she's serious about this. This is really a deal. So I told her, um, it really been about two weeks, I guess. I was hoping she'd come around. And uh, I said, look, I can tell it really bothers you. I love you more than that. I will quit watching those games live. <laughs> and I, she was here today. She testified to you that I don't watch them live. I do not watch them live. You say, what do you do? You, you tape them and then uh, don't find out the score and you watch them later? That's not what I do either. I tape them. I find out what the score is. And if we won, I watch it. <laughs> if we lose, I delete it. Now, it will change your life. I'm telling you, you think this guy needs counseling. I perhaps do, but I'm telling you. It will change your life. Let me tell you what I mean. There's one game I've watched about at least 30, 35 times. When Kentucky played Michigan a few years ago in the semis. It means nothing to you. It means everything to me. But let me just tell you the story real quick. We were behind by 10 points at halftime. 10 points at halftime. We had dominated all year. Ranked number one. 10 points at halftime. The announcers were negative, negative, negative. I mean, you listen to it. It's like, oh, my word. It's a tidal wave of negativism. You know, from, oh, it's, they're too far down. They'll never come back. And all this negativity. Now, did that bother me at all? Not at all. I know we win. <laughs> I don't care. It's like, you can yak all you want. I'm fixing me another peanut butter and jelly, you know? <laughs> it didn't bother me. I know we win. What do I care? It's negative, negative. What does that matter? Ten minutes to go in the game. We're still down by eight. Ooh, I'm not scared. I'm not yelling. I'm just petting my dog. <laughs> a minute to go, we're two points down, they have the ball. My heart's not beating fast. No, 
I know what happens. 40 seconds to go, we steal the ball. We come down, we pass it around. Five, four, three. What do they do? They throw it to a guy by the name of Aaron Harrison, who's from Houston. He shoots a three-point shot. Right as the buzzer sounds, does it go in? I bet it does. <laughs> and we win. I mean, I'm feeling warm in my heart just thinking about it. My point is this. When Paul said, I mean, when the Lord said to Paul, don't be afraid. And whatever you do, don't quit. Don't quit at halftime. Hey, it may seem like you're 10 points down. It may seem like life's thrown you a curveball that you just cannot pull out of. But it's just halftime. You gotta keep things in perspective, he would say to Paul. Paul, don't, don't be, stop being afraid. That's ridiculous. I'm always gonna be here. And don't think you know everything. There is one God, Paul, and you're not him. It's me. And that's why he went on to say, there are many people in this city that you know not of. What he was saying to Paul is, there are many people in this city I'm going to use you to reach and you don't even know their names yet. Look, God has called you to be on mission. There are several people in Maine this time last week had no idea they would not be living today. How much time do you have? You don't know. What are you gonna do with it? You have everything to do with it. I pray that you live life like you're on mission. There's no time. People are dying and going to hell. There's no time to pull over to the side. There's no rest stops. There have to be a sense of urgency here to be on mission. You're in a very dangerous position. I really mean that. Because you're a part of a church that's very missions-minded. And you have a pastor that's very missions-minded. You can come here and sing the songs and you can feel missions-minded and have no action at all. You can be around it but not be engaged in it. So I just encourage you, today, I want you to just look at yourself. There was a, a Gypsy Smith was an old evangelist and was asked, how do you start revival? He said, well, it's actually pretty easy. Easy? Oh, yeah, easy. How do you do it? He said, it's real simple. You, you go into a room all by yourself, all by yourself, all by yourself, and you get a piece of chalk, a piece of chalk, a piece of chalk, and you draw a circle on the floor. And then you get down on your knees in that circle and pray that God would start a revival in that circle. Our point is, you can't make decisions for other people. You can't make them for yourself. God's gonna bring you open doors. Don't judge those doors by how easy they are. Judge those doors by what they amount to the gospel and the spreading of it. I want us to bow our heads. As we bow our heads, I want you to understand that, man, God loves you so much 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This church really believes that because the Bible teaches it, that Jesus is the one who can change your life. So if you're here today and you do not know him, we want to invite you to do that. We're going to have uh, the staff and counselors here at the front. They would love to pray with you about how to do that. And pastor's going to walk you through that. But if you do know Christ, and today's the day, I want you to evaluate what are you doing to be a part of being on mission? Are you just in the stands applauding it as others do it? Or are you actually engaging? Father, thank you for how you love us You care for us, you know everything about us, and you use us anyway. Oh, Father, help us to make the most of our days. May we not waste time on frivolous things, but to be focused on you. Lord, may we pray as Paul did, that we consider our lives nothing to ourselves. Help us to understand we've been bought with a price. We don't belong to us anymore, we belong to you. Father, help us to be focused on mission and to please you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org slash connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus in person on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.